is Jackie Robinson Ivy, and I'd like to thank you all for being here today. I get the illustrious honor of serving as chair of this wonderful board, and um, along with Omar Dagestani, our treasurer, Dan Gibbons, our vice chair, Francis Cow, our secretary, and I think that's all the board members today, and our staff, we would like to thank you for being here today. Who'd I leave? Oh my gosh. See, this is why I shouldn't do the shout outs. I just left off the person who I'm ashamedly to tell you on the board is my favorite person, Dr. Jose Sanchez. You can clap for him because I'm going to pay for that later. So let it not be said that we didn't try to start on time today. I love a full house. We're going to get right to it. Um, let me just run through our sponsors really quickly. I, it's, there are so many people in this room today. I'm just going to say everybody's a VIP. How about that? Does that work for everybody? Great. So DL3 Realty is here. You can hold your applause till I'm done with everybody. Chicago Metropolitan Housing Development, Chicago Neighborhood Initiatives, Chicago Federation of Labor, Clayco, Preservation of Affordable Housing, Trinall, United Power of Action and Justice, World Business Chicago, Globetrotters, J.P. Morgan Chase, and William Everett. Um, is Alicia from Trinall here? Is she here? A little birdie told me it's your birthday. Is that right? <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Birthdays are to be celebrated, right? Good afternoon. I'm Francis Gao, one of the governors of the City Club. Welcome. With degrees from the University of Michigan, University of Chicago, and the Institute Politicon. Politecnico in Milan, our speaker today has spent the better part of her professional life developing, building, and advocating for the human right to stable, equitable, and affordable housing. Here by video to introduce Commissioner Marissa Navarra is the head of our great city, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Hello, everyone. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot here because it's my honor to introduce today's speaker, Department of Housing Commissioner Marisa Navarra. Folks, our residents hailing from every neighborhood and zip code deserve a safe and affordable place to call home, put down roots, and to raise a family in. But that can be easier said than done. And as my administration works continually to address systemic racism, racial inequities, we know that increasing access to affordable housing must continue to be a top priority. To that end, folks, I want to tell you, we are tremendously lucky to have someone like Commissioner Navarra leading the charge to expand housing choices and protect our residents' right to a safe and affordable, healthy home. I first met the commissioner when I was a candidate for mayor, and she was vice president of the Metropolitan Planning Council. There she had created and led a cost of segregation study, which found that segregation cost the city literally billions of dollars. She followed up that report with a roadmap for racial equity, spelling out the ways that all sectors could embrace racial equity in their work. Marisa then briefed the candidates for mayor, including me, on the tenets of her report, and in particular, goals for affordable housing. I knew then that she was absolutely the best person to lead our reinvigorated Department of Housing. And she is not disappointed. 
As Commissioner Navarro can tell you, she holds a strong belief that housing is a basic human right. And I share her view, and she carries that belief throughout all of her work. Under her leadership, the city has taken bold, transformative steps to expand safe and affordable housing options, including the largest ever investment and commitment to affordable housing in this city's history, totaling, folks, $1 billion. And as the city and DOH work to increase housing opportunities for all of our residents, Commissioner Navarra is strategic in shaping housing policy. She is focused on implementing energy efficiency and other climate resilient measures. And more than anything, she is dedicated to equity and inclusivity as we build Chicago into the most equitable city in the country. As you can tell, I'm enthusiastic and passionate and 100% behind the work that Commissioner Navarro and her team are doing. And I'm excited for all of you to learn more about her and the impact that she and her department are having on our great city every single day. And so without further ado, I give you our great Commissioner of Housing, Marisa Navarra. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much to City Club for having me here to speak today. You know, what they don't tell you is that when you're the one speaking, it's like a big family reunion in here. Um, We've got Leadership Greater Chicago and (laughs) Metropolitan Planning Council, United Power. Um, Thank you so much to all of you for being here today to learn more about our racial equity approach to affordable housing and the new call for proposals that we are releasing today. There's a few people here that I would like to recognize in particular as incredible partners. And actually this person is um, tied up at City Hall right now with a hearing, uh, Tracy Scott with the Chicago Housing Authority. Um, We are there with um, standing in front of the future home of the National Public Housing Museum. Uh, Commissioner Rachel Arfa, uh, the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities. And that's us at the groundbreaking for the first low-income housing tax credit development in the country for the blind and visually impaired. Um, Here we've got my partners in all things community development, my mayor's office, Consigliere Samir Mayakar, Deputy Mayor, and Planning Commissioner Maurice Cox. That's us at the groundbreaking of the Invest Southwest development in Auburn Gresham. And finally, Candace Moore, the city's first chief equity officer and head of the city's very first office of equity and racial justice. Candace helped us. Yeah, please. Candace helped us with the racial equity impact assessment that I'll tell you about later. And I wanted to show you these pictures because these are the tangible ways that we partner and the real things we're doing together in communities every day. I'm very grateful for all of you. All right, so this photo is uh, June 2019, the day that I was confirmed by city council. My husband, Ted, and our sons, Nico and Mateo, are on the right. They are both about a foot taller now, and uh, they are here today. Don't... (laughs) 
Don't tell CEO Martinez because they're both CPS high school students. Um, And they've had a really great education in CPS, but I have to say that I think because of this job, they've had an even greater political education, especially during COVID. One time when we were all home during lockdown and they were in school and I was working all day and we sat down to dinner and one of my sons said to me, so mom, why did your ordinance get sent to rules committee and how are you going to get it out? (laughs) These were not questions I was asking when I was 15. Uh, So I'm so glad that you three, my uh, favorite people in the world, are here today, as you have been every day of this adventure. And the other people in this picture, in addition to the person in the middle, who you may recognize, Mayor Lightfoot, are my parents, uh, who are not here today. My mom passed away in November, and I have spent um, a fair amount of time thinking about the uh, and reflecting on the things that I learned from her. One thing that stood out to me that I want to share with you, because it really has a lot to do with who I am, um, my mom worked in community mental health. And when I was growing up, she was part of the deinstitutionalization movement, meaning that for those who were able, adults with developmental disabilities and mental illness should be able to live in communities rather than in institutions. So my mom led the push in our town in Michigan to establish group homes in communities where people capable of living independently could do so. And when they identified a good property for this, she would have to lead community meetings to discuss the plan with neighbors. What I remember about that is her describing these community meetings full of people yelling at her uh, that they didn't want uh, these people living on their block. Uh, They were full of fears about property values and crime and things that sound very familiar to me uh, now. So I was a kid, and we didn't necessarily have profound conversations about this at the time, but it, it really did have a profound impact on me. Because in the end, was that what I observed was that my mom just kept going. She didn't ask permission to keep going. She didn't wait for a standing ovation to keep going. She just kept at it one sweaty, loud, uncomfortable community meeting at a time. Even when the dread of absorbing that kind of vitriol uh, made her throw up beforehand. That I do remember. Uh, but she ended up establishing countless group homes where people successfully lived independently for the rest of their lives as a result. So I think the reason that that made such an impression on me is that I think so many of us as girls and women, sometimes indirectly, sometimes quite explicitly, are given the message that if people are angry at you, you should stop what you're doing right away. And you should probably apologize too, because heaven forbid you cause any uh, tension. So what I learned from my mom at a really young age, in contrast, is that some things will anger people, and some things will disappoint people. And you know what? That's okay. Because often the pushback is not fundamentally about the worth of the project in question. It's about people's fears. So yes, it's important to listen. And yes, learn if there are changes changes that you should make. And accept that even still some things that are right and good will make people angry and will disappoint them. And you can't wait for their approval to keep going if 
it's, it's in the name of what Congressman John Lewis called good trouble. You, These are lessons that, you know, turn out to be almost a daily meditation for me now. I'm really grateful for that. And I know my mom would appreciate this day. So this one's for you, Mama. All right. So I'm here to talk about a racial equity approach to affordable housing and ultimately how that approach results in the call for proposals that we're releasing today. But first, I want to tell you about the vision of the Department of Housing and what we mean by racial equity. So keep in mind that when I started in June 2019, housing had not been a department for a decade by that point. So being the Department of Housing with its own commissioner was brand new. And I noticed right away we had no mission statement. We had no vision for the role of affordable housing in Chicago. We worked collectively on our mission, vision, and values as an entire department of 100 people. And I want to share our vision with you. It is the equitable distribution of resources across all 77 communities so that every Chicagoan can choose and remain in quality housing that is affordable, safe, and healthy. Let me just add one thing, kind of basic, but just in case. Here's what we mean by affordable housing. Affordable housing housing is affordable to you if you are paying no more than 30% of your income toward the place that you live. Some people end up paying 50, 60% of their income on housing because their income is too low or the rent's too high or both. And that's where our funds come in. We help to get the rents low enough to reach that 30% of your income benchmark. Part and parcel of this vision is my belief that those who need a subsidy to live affordably deserve to have just as many choices of where they can live as those who don't need a subsidy to live affordably. And we're not there yet as a city, but I can say that under Mayor Lightfoot, we have made tremendous amount of progress, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So that's our vision as a department, and it's embedded in our commitment to racial equity. So what do we mean by racial equity? Racial equity is a process of eliminating racial disparities and improving outcomes for everyone. It is intentional intentional and continual. Candace often says that racial equity is both a process and an outcome. If I want racially equitable outcomes, I've got to go through a deliberate process to get to them. They won't just happen on our own. The process part of that means we examine our data by race, we listen to impacted populations, and we shift our policies accordingly. And for those of you that are thinking, but wait, race is not the only way that we marginalize people, you are right. What I've experienced is that when you establish this framework, though, you can then start to examine other kinds of marginalization, too, whether by gender, arrest or conviction record, immigration status, geography, sexual orientation, ability, age, all the ways that humans can be and are marginalized. It's a really powerful process. So how you do that, I'll talk more about in a moment. But first, I want to make sure to illustrate what we're talking about. So here's an image from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Some of you might be familiar with an older image of some people trying to look over a fence at a baseball game, but it started to get some criticism. Why is there a fence? It's really structurally unsound to put the shortest person on that many boxes. Who cares about baseball anyway? I mean, it was, it was getting a little distracting. So we're going with this one. 
um, this is an illustration of the difference between equality and equity. So equality is on the left. You can see right away the problem. Everyone gets the same, regardless of what they need. What the image on the right shows is what it looks like when we focus on people getting what they actually need. That's equity. So in the image on the right, we see people of different ability levels getting their needs met. There are visual and audio cues for crossing the street, a curb cut instead of a hard step. No one on the right is getting less than they were getting on the left. Everyone's getting more when people get what they actually need to realize the outcome we want. So that's what a racial equity approach is. And here's why we do this. We take this approach because in this country, race-neutral policies will never give us race-neutral results. What we know about structural racism is that simply letting things unfold is not neutral. In the words of Ijeoma Oluo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race, systemic racism is a machine that runs whether we pull the levers or not. And by just letting it be, we are responsible for what it produces. We have to actually dismantle the machine if we want to make change. Thing that I'll add here is that we're talking about systemic racism. We're not talking about individuals. This is not about individual people's intentions. It's about the outcomes we produce. So for instance, an individual loan officer at a bank can't single-handedly create more equitable mortgage lending unless the bank itself is willing to overhaul its policies and practices to get more equitable outcomes. In our case, the outcomes we want require a little more than a curb cut. So let me give a couple examples of how we've used a racial equity approach to get there. All right, so starting from the top, with the Transit-Oriented Development Connected Communities Ordinance passed in July 2022 with our partners at Elevated Chicago, we addressed the fact that from 2013 to 2019, 90% of transit-oriented development projects were on the north side, downtown, or the West Loop. 90%, as if people don't ride the L, the Metro, or the bus on the south and west sides, right? We know that they do, and we know that more would if we created more transit-oriented development. So we made more than a dozen changes to the zoning code to make equitable transit-oriented development a reality around the entire city. And big thanks to our partners again at Elevated Chicago for that. In 2021, Mayor Lightfoot announced the single largest investment in affordable housing in, this, in the city's history, $1 billion. And it wasn't just that we doubled the number of developments that we normally fund. It's that of those 24 developments that we funded, 12 of them were equitable transit-oriented developments on the south and west side. So that's what it looks like to put a racial equity approach into action. The Affordable Requirements Ordinance is our main tool to address Chicago's profound racial and economic segregation and to give people choices, as I said at the top. In 2021, we strengthened the ordinance to require 20% affordable units in high-income, amenity-rich parts of the city. Because if you think that people who need a subsidy to live affordably don't have a right to live in the West Loop or downtown or the North Side, then you're missing the point of racial equity. Finally, we conducted the first racial equity impact assessment in the country on our low-income housing tax credit program. I'm going to pause here and go into a little more detail on this because it uh, relates a lot to our announcement today. 
So low-income housing tax credits are the main way that this country funds affordable rental housing. Department of Housing gets its own allocation, and every two years we do a funding round to invite housing proposals. We select a subset of awardees, and affordable housing gets built. If this were uh, a normal industry, this would be called a request for proposals, but we are a special snowflake of an industry, so we call it a qualified allocation plan. Uh, this program has been around since the late 80s, and so we have some data about how it has played out in Chicago. And one of the first things that I set out to do when I started in this role was to analyze the outcomes of this program through a racial equity lens to inform our next funding round. So we did that. We examined our data. We disaggregated it by race. We mapped it by geography and any other factors that we could. We talked to residents of tax credit uh, projects, we talked to lenders and investors, and we looked for what we needed to change to get to more equitable outcomes. And we learned a lot, and we made a lot of changes, and those were reflected in our last round. Um, I'm just going to talk about one of them, because that's not the topic for today. But before I do, I just want to pause and acknowledge something. Um, opening yourself up in this way is hard. In this work, and many of my colleagues at the Department of Housing have been at this a lot longer than I have, um, you know, you get told that your work is trash like five times before breakfast every day. You sort of voluntarily say, hey, let's see where else we're falling short and let's be really public with what we find. Um, it's, it's hard to do and it's a brave thing to do. And it's also the only way that we get to better outcomes. So I really want to commend my colleagues for jumping in with both feet. Also, if you're contemplating this work for your organization or for your company, it's completely understandable to also feel that, um, hey, I've worked really hard. I've been really sincere in trying to do right by my community or by my customers. And here's what I want to say to that. That can be 100% true. And that is why, again, I stress this is not about individual effort or intent. Even the most sincere, hardest-working individual laboring within a discriminatory system will reproduce discriminatory outcomes. So it's the system that we have to change. So back to this. Here's the one finding of many that I will share. We realized that in our prior qualified allocation plans, we had been silent on the question of who develops affordable housing, for which, of course, one earns a developer fee. And in a country with profound racial wealth gaps, we realized we could not just focus on who benefits by living in our affordable housing units. We also needed to focus on who is building wealth through the creation of those units. Sure. So for the first time in our 2021 funding round, we established a preference for development teams with BIPOC-led developers or joint venture ventures that ensure small BIPOC-led firms and nonprofits have material participation in a way that really promotes their growth. And by simply stating that as a preference, we saw a huge jump in black and brown-led developments and partnerships. This is an example of what I mean when I say that race-neutral language will not get you race-neutral results. We had to change our language. We've done a whole bunch of other important things, too. 
uh, I've only got 30 minutes, so I can't, I'm only going to cover a couple things. We've secured $10 million for Woodlawn affordability protections. During COVID, we secured 1,200 hotel rooms and 900 additional shelter beds. We've resolved 1,600 eviction cases and counting our emergency rental assistance program kept 30,000 Chicago families housed from 2020 to 2022. With Invest Southwest, $132 million has been approved by council for the first three responses to RFPs, with five more on the way. All told, there are 21 developments in Invest Southwest areas in our pipeline, representing nearly 1,300 new rental housing units. And lots more that I don't have time to talk about. But the one thing I will say on this slide, because I have been focusing um, almost exclusively in this talk on rental housing, I do want to pause and say something about home ownership. Um, the the note here on affordable home ownership on the south and west sides at scale. When I say scale, I'm talking 100. Uh, sorry, 1,000 homes. 1,000 households building wealth on the south and west side. Thanks to the hard work of United Power, this kind of scale is possible. It's going to be amazing. So, thank you. So that's 2019 to 2022. Now we turn to what's next. We're here today to release our draft call for new affordable rental housing proposals. And I went through all that uh, ground to ground this new call for proposals in our approach. Because what you will hear is that we continue to question and poke and prod at how we can do this work better. And that approach shows up in this funding round. So we already established the idea, the QAP or request for proposals. It establishes our priorities and selection criteria for this funding round. The draft is released today. It's open for public comment for 30 days. We're partnering with the Illinois Housing Council for two public meetings. We then expect to issue the final in the spring. Proposals will be due by July 7th, and we uh, hope to announce awardees by the end of the year. The draft QAP, the email to submit comments, and the public meeting dates are all available on our website at chicago.gov QAP. So what does it say? Well, here are a few highlights. For the first time, we have a track dedicated to permanent supportive housing. Yeah. In addition to serving people meeting the traditional definition of homelessness, for the first time, we are also reserving units for people leaving jail or prison, units for people living doubled up, and units for survivors of gender-based violence. And here's why this matters to us, and it matters to our partners at the Department of Family and Support Services and all Chicago. HUD does not consider people living in the situations I just described as being homeless until they are actually on the street. So if you're living doubled up, meaning you're sleeping on someone's couch or on their floor, you're not considered homeless and you can't benefit from any of the units set aside for that population. Similarly, if you're one of the 20,000 or so people who leave incarceration every year in Illinois and you don't have a stable or safe home to go to, our current federal guidelines mandate that you become homeless first before we can help you. So the need is great. And we know that at our most basic level, homelessness is a housing problem. Cities that have more affordable housing have less homelessness. 
We as a department have a growing sense of shared responsibility for these issues along with our, part, our partners at DFSS, where the bulk of this work traditionally lies. So between all of the avenues I just listed, we expect to provide more than 200 units of permanent supportive housing in this funding round, many of them reserved for the specific populations that I just mentioned. And for the first time, we are providing funds that developers can keep in escrow to pay for the supportive services that are so often really needed to keep people successfully housed. All right, so I mentioned the Connected Communities ETOD Ordinance previously. So both the ETOD Policy Plan and the Connected Communities Ordinance have passed since our last funding round. And I cannot emphasize enough the importance of the development community embracing the provisions therein if your proposal is near transit and you want to be considered competitive. The ordinance doubles the radius of applicable geography, expands eligible bus routes by a factor of three, creates a major incentive for ground floor accessible units and eliminates mandatory parking minimums for affordable projects near transit. Again, if you want your project to be competitive, I strongly encourage applicants to carefully analyze the amount of parking needed and take the parking reductions that we and many in this room fought really hard to make available. With a 120,000-unit affordable housing gap, I have no interest in funding vacant parking spots when we could be housing people. I'm going to say that one other way, because in the past, some have had a little confusion over this point. Uh, Joy Arugete will recognize what I'm about to say because I first found myself needing to say, to articulate this, I guess, during an epic battle over replacing a parking lot with affordable housing in Logan Square, where people actually argued that uh, a surface parking lot that was never more than one-third full adjacent to a transit station was a higher and better use than affordably housing 100 low-income households in a gentrifying community. So I said this then, and I'll say it again here. The Department of Housing values people over cars. <laughs> Finally, we are encouraging developers of transit-oriented developments to provide transit and or DIVI subsidies to residents for a period of time. We've had some discussions with CTA and DIVI on this, but we really encourage developers to give us feedback on this idea during public comment. Tell us what would make this workable for you and how this can best be structured. So for broadband, we know that increasingly people are working from home and young people need the internet to do their homework. For the 2023 QAP, we preference developments that provide open access fiber line to every affordable unit with in-unit service provided for tenants. All right, I talked about in our last funding round how we conveyed a preference for Brack and Bond developers in the lead or in partnership. We knew that that was just a start and that that step was necessary, but it was not sufficient. Again, this is a continual process, like I said. So we held a series of listening sessions over the course of 2022. Many of you in this room took part in them. We learned a lot more about the barriers to black and brown developers and contractors. And here was one of our biggest takeaways. So 
who here remembers how brutal the learning curve was on their first low-income housing tax credit deal? I certainly do, right? It's wholly appropriate and necessary to partner with a more experienced developer your first and even second time through. But after that, if the only reason you're still partnering is because investors aren't comfortable with your balance sheet, then we still have a ways to go because you will always be splitting your developer fee, not because you don't have capacity, but simply because you don't have the money the bigger, more established developers do. The good news is that groups like Enterprise Community Partners, Chicago Community Trust are trying to wrap their arms around that problem, creating vehicles to provide balance sheet support and pre-development grants, respectively. And in the meantime, to those who participated in our listening sessions, we heard you and we're making some changes. I will say if this isn't your world, some of this is going to sound a little wonky, but it means a lot to folks trying to get their deals to pencil out. So um, one is that if you need a consultant to help navigate the Byzantine tax credit system, you can now include that cost in your funding stack. You can now use contingency to cover a portion of errors and omissions. Uh, thank you to the Illinois Housing Council for working with us on that one. Uh, and we're now requiring that developers hold bid forums to solicit bids using city assist agencies to open opportunities for black and brown contractors. All right, two more and I'm out. Climate change. Chicago's building stock accounts, this is, I did not know this until we started this work. Chicago's building stock accounts for almost 70% of local carbon emissions. So we have a huge role to play in meeting the ambitious goals of the city's climate action plan. This funding round includes new preferences and requirements related to energy efficiency, decarbonization, and climate resilience. Finally, I want to call your attention to three site-specific calls for proposals in this round. One is at 18th and Peoria in Pilsen. This is a six-acre site in the heart of a gentrifying community where we anticipate hundreds of future affordable housing units. This is unique because the city stepped up and acquired this site, really the last large-scale site in Pilsen. And with the planning department, we've been working with community members for their input on density, open space, and affordability levels to inform a site plan. The plan is scheduled to be final in the spring. Proposals considered competitive will follow its guidelines. In this round, we hope to be able to fund the first of many new affordable developments on this site. Next is Lake and Kedzie in East Garfield Park, three sites adjacent to the Green Line, a fantastic opportunity for transit-oriented development. And finally, the product of many years of work with the Woodlawn community, we are offering in total 18 city-owned lots for eventually four different affordable housing developments on 63rd Street near the Green Line terminus, another ETOD. In this round, we hope to be able to fund the first of four fulfilling commitments made in the Woodlawn Housing Preservation Ordinance to reach deep levels of affordability. My thanks to Commissioner Cox and his team at the Planning Department for their partnership on these really exciting opportunities. So that's our racial equity informed 2023 call for proposals. And that is a racial equity approach to affordable housing. I wasn't quite done, but I'll take it. Um, 
if I had to reduce it to its essential parts, I would say this. It's a vision, the equitable distribution of affordable housing across all 77 community areas, plus a guiding philosophy, race silent is never race neutral, plus an iterative process of assessing our status quo and taking action where we fall short, plus the humility to always be in listening mode and learning and improving, plus finally dedicated staff. So on that note, I have to call out the incredible team at the Department of Housing who made this possible. As they were busy doing their day jobs, they spent months and months analyzing what could be done better in this funding round. They named themselves the QAP squad. And I wanted a picture of them. Turns out they were a little hard to pin down, so we had to take several. Um, and I wanted a picture of them because many times, those of us who work for the city are not so lovingly referred to as faceless bureaucrats. But my colleagues all have faces. They all have names. They work very hard on behalf of the residents of the city of Chicago. This effort in particular was led by Brian Essenberg, Tamara Collins, and Asia Bonner. I'd like to ask that all members of the QAP squad and the Department of Housing please stand and be recognized. And finally, thank you to my dedicated colleagues at the Department of Housing and across City Hall and to all of you. Chicago has an amazing ecosystem of affordable housing creators, champions, and allies, and this room is full of them. I am deeply grateful to be in this work together with you. Thank you. Uh, so we do have a few questions. We do have time for a few questions for the commissioner. Um, you do have uh, these forms on your uh, table if you have a question that you've thought of. Uh, but we do have some um, that have already been submitted. And I'll read this while the commissioner gets a drink. Uh, so, Commissioner Navarro, can you speak to the move for more affordable housing downtown and conversion from office space to residential space? Sure. So um, this was another project that we did together with uh, the planning department very closely. This was led by Cindy Rubick. Um, it's called LaSalle Street Reimagined. And uh, we took a look at uh, office buildings along LaSalle Street that were that had become vacant. And um, rather than kind of watching that unfold, decided to do a really proactive effort to see how those buildings could be reimagined with residential, and given that um, we had uh, we have a high, a very rich TIF along that street, um, we knew that we could try to push for more affordable housing than the ARO alone requires. So, um, so we put out a goal to to reach 30% affordable housing within those redevelopments along the South Street, knowing that we could bring a host of resources to the table. TIF. Uh, 4% tax credits, uh, the state abatement, uh, historic tax credits, any number of things that we could work together with developers to, um, to really do something creative. 
And um, what's been really gratifying is that um, the response was pretty overwhelming. Uh, we we were hoping for a thousand units and thus maybe three hundred affordable units. The response that we got was for over five hundred affordable units in that space. So I think it's really exciting. I think um, I'm really proud of, I think this is a great example of cities being proactive and creative. And I really want to, again, commend the, the planning department for uh, for their work on this. And so we're in the middle of analyzing those, and we hope to see some movement this year. Great. Thank you. From Robert Remmer of the Edgewater Historical Society, how can the city advance an agenda of sustainability that combines historic preservation, sustainable neighborhoods, and increased affordable housing? So you just heard one example of that, right, on La, on LaSalle Street. Um, and I'll give another one. Part of our uh, the Chicago Recovery Plan dollars are focused on um, using a, uh, those dollars to rehab existing buildings with a decarbonization focus. And so right now we are looking in particular at a church. And I, to my knowledge, it would likely be the first time um, that we would be able to um, – create a shift from a church use to an affordable housing use. Where we've seen a shift to residential, it's typically been luxury. Um, and so and we're looking at this as a possible decarbonization um, play as well as an adaptive reuse as well as an affordable housing play. So we're really excited about that. Um, it's, it's not public yet, um, hopefully later this quarter. Thanks. From Lori Rubin of SI Container Builds, can you please talk about Chicago's commitment to the ADU pilots and the RFP related to tiny homes? Sure. So for those who don't know, we have in additional dwelling units. What that means is that we made it legal, finally, the, uh, to rent out your basement or your attic or a coach house. It had been made illegal in 1957. Uh, which, of course, didn't mean we didn't have any of them. It just meant they weren't ever built out to code uh, or, you know, no one was allowed to build new coach houses. So um, we put forth uh, actually what the mayor introduced was a citywide ordinance. We did not have support in council at that moment for citywide. So we ended up with five uh, pilot areas and, and those have been going now for about a year and a half. Um, and, um, and I think there's a lot of interest in revisiting that to make that truly a citywide, um, opportunity. We hear from a lot of electeds who are hearing from their constituents that they're right outside the pilot or they're very interested in this. And we think it's a really important way to add gentle density to communities, um, in that way. And it's a way to allow people to, um, age in place to become multi-generational, all kinds of important things and, and things that we especially learned were even more important during COVID. Um, on the tiny homes pilot, so Mayor Lightfoot announced uh, in her budget uh, a tiny homes pilot for 2023. And what we are excited about with that, we think that there would be, um, it would be across several vacant city-owned lots. We, we envision that it could be um, maybe four to eight homes on, on a series of contiguous lots, perhaps with a communal space as well. And we think that this is 
it's important for us as a city to experiment with um, different ways of creating communities. And some of the things we envision could be income-restricted artists who create this community or a limited equity co-op um, or people who um, experience real difficulty with communal spaces and they need their own front door. Um, and the only way to get that normally is very cost prohibitive. So this is a way uh, that we can really help work with different populations and different types. So we're expecting that to come out in quarter two. Um, how can other city departments follow your lead in creating opportunities for authentic community engagement in creating affordable housing? So this is something I will, um, I'm, I will be very grateful always to Mayor Lightfoot for. When I interviewed with her, I actually pulled out my laptop and showed her my proposed org chart. And what was new on the org chart that did not exist was a position, a high-level position, and I argued that it should be at the managing deputy level, um, who would take on and really embrace community engagement and racial equity and the kind of strategic initiatives that are really hard to do if you don't have someone dedicated to it. Uh, and the mayor said yes, and um, that has now grown from being um, a person to a bureau of 10 people, and um, and they do really important work. It's led by Natasha Hamilton, and they do really important work in ensuring that we're doing the kind of sincere community engagement um, and respectful community engagement that I know we all want to do. What I will also say is that we have been met in that in many ways because we partner a lot across the city. So Invest Southwest is an example that is multiple departments at the table working through the RFPs, for instance, that have been done. Um, those are ways that we work together and we engage in community together around those opportunities. So um, I would say, you know, having staff that are dedicated and, and have a skill set and can help train other staff is a big part of it. And then being able to collaborate with our sister departments as well. Thank you very much. I think that's all the, not all that we have time for. And in the meantime, we would also... We'd like to thank the commissioner and uh, Dan, Mr. Gibbons, and I would like to prevent, present the uh, commissioner with a one-year membership to the City Club. Um, and thank you again for coming today. Thank you. Very good. We also, have a, uh, we also, of course, have a raffle for Let Us Entertain You gift card. So we do have our City Club raffle. We'll have somebody, a lean friend up post to pick a card out. <laughs> Thank you. Here's our winner, Amy, Amy Carey. Amy Carey from Case Western Reserve University. We have a gift certificate for Amy. Amanda's got it here. Francis, thank you very much. Commissioner, thank you very much. We've got a great couple of weeks coming up at City Club, so we hope to see all of you back. We've got a Cam Buckner breakfast on Thursday, Mayor Lightfoot on Friday for lunch. And we just figured out how to add a few extra seats because she sold out so quick. So um, keep uh, keep an eye on the website. Future of Community Policing. We've got Paul Vallis on the 31st. And, of course, Commissioner Maurice Cox. We're looking forward to seeing you on February 7th. So uh, thank you for being here. City Club is adjourned. Thank you so much, Commissioner Navarro.